Um, and how many of you this past summer have been at a wedding? Come on. Unless, like, there's more hands. Who, who, who has been at a wedding? Who has been at three weddings? I have officiated five weddings this summer of Couples from Hope, and it has been wonderful, and I genuinely mean that. Every single one of them has been fantastic. I've enjoyed. I love the wedding service. Reception, sometimes, but, but I, love, I love the wedding ceremony. I love, you know, I think one of the things I love about it is you've got a church full of people who many of them never come to church. And so you have such an opportunity, not necessarily to see them come to Christ, but just to change their perception. And when I do, the odd time I do go to the reception afterwards, if I'm in the toilet, there's always the drunk guy comes in and goes, mate, that was effing brilliant. Sorry, sorry, mate, sorry, mate, but that was effing class. And there's always that moment because they're, they're used to very often just to a traditional, you know, run in the mill. And then when they come to a Christian wedding where Christ is at the heart of it, they're just blown away. And I, I love that. I love officiating weddings. And I've been doing that for a while. Uh, and normally it goes without a hitch. Everything's very smooth. But there's been a few wee issues over the years. Like the very first wedding I did was for my friends, Keith and Karen. Keith's one of my best friends. I lived with him at university. It was four days after I was ordained in 2006, which makes Keith a very brave man, asking me to officiate his wedding. And literally, the oil is still wet on my head from the bishop's hands. But, uh, but it was in Macarafelt, and I thought, you know, I was going from Lurgan at that stage. I'll give myself two hours. The wedding was at one o'clock, and that was, I liked being there an hour beforehand. And so I left at 11, and then I got stuck in a, there was an accident in Cookstown, and the traffic was backed up for miles, and it was horrendous. I was sweating. There was language maybe coming out that wasn't in the King James Version or even in the, in the message. And, and, and I was just stressed. I was getting anxious and the traffic wasn't moving and Keith was texting me. He was getting stressed and Mark felt wondering where I was. And literally as I pulled up, the bride arrived. So two of us walked in in a white dress at the same time because that was back in the days when I wore those horrible garments. Then there was another situation uh, in, in Lurgan where there was a, a bride who was coming by horse and cart, which is all lovely and romantic and fantastic. Apart from she, she left at 10 to 2. Her wedding was at 2, and she lived in Ackley. And, uh, and unless that horse was Shergar, she was never going. She was an hour late, an hour late. I kept telling the groom that she'd contacted us and told us that she'd bailed out of the whole thing. Um, and then there was the other situation where there was a wedding at one o'clock. And, and all these things happen in Lurgan for some reason. Um, but uh, the organist was a teacher, and he would normally nip out of school at lunchtime, come play the organ at the wedding, then go back to school for the afternoon. And he was so dependable and so reliable. I'll not tell you who it was, but he's the principal of Warrenstown Primary School. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so, so at 10 to 1, I, I wasn't stressed because, uh, we'll call him Carl, um, we, we, because that's his name. Um, he, you know, he's so dependable. Carl is so reliable. You know, you know, and a five to one came and I started to get a little bit nervous, but thankfully the bride, I was told, was running late. So one o'clock came and there's still no organist and no bride. It's the only time I've been thankful that a bride was late. And, uh, but I began to stress a bit because 
like if the bride had been on time, we had no organist, there was nothing for her to walk up the aisle to. Like, you know, I was thinking, can I get the guitar out? Can I get the recorder out? You know, maybe the tambourine? Can I get a comb and put a bit of... I don't, I don't know what to do at this point because there's no organist, there's no one to play the hymns, there's no one to play the music. And we're, the church office is trying, everybody's trying to phone them, we're sending out pigeons to try and find them. And we couldn't find Carl anywhere. And, and 10 past one came, the bride still wasn't there, and I'm in an absolute panic at this stage. And then I remember there's a guy comes in once a week who, who doesn't go to Shankill, but he practices on the organ. He lives around the corner. I phone him. He, he runs around. He sits down. He plays. the bread, you know, uh, and, and nobody has a clue that anything has happened. So weddings are, I, I generally enjoy them, but sometimes they're stressful. Sometimes things go wrong. And Jesus here in John chapter 2 is at a wedding where some things go wrong. Look at the first verse with me. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to to the wedding. This is the first week of Jesus' public ministry. For 30 years, he's lived in relative obscurity. He's been a carpenter working with his father. And now he's stepping out into his public ministry. And he's at a wedding. I mean, if, if I was launching a ministry, I would probably want to do it in a big city somewhere, at some big uh, you know, conference or event, in something, something dramatic. I would want a healing. I would want to raise the dead. Jesus is at a wedding. He's at a social gathering. It seems that it's somebody connected to his family in some way. His mother seems to be involved, maybe close friends, maybe relations, but his mother seems to be involved behind the scenes. And in those days, you know, a wedding today starts at one, then there's the 45 minutes of a wedding, then you go to sitting around for four hours at the hotel, and then there's a meal and the speeches and all of that. In those days, a wedding could last between four and seven days. It was a huge event. The entire town came. It was the biggest event in the social calendar. And Jesus doesn't pick a big city for his first miracle. He picks a little place called Cana, a little place that they have struggled to find on the map today, a little hole in the hedge, pick town. It would be like Jesus doing his first miracle in Blairy or Donna Cloney to launch his ministry. Not, not saying anything bad about Blairy or Donna Cloney, but it wouldn't be the first choice to launch the Messiah's ministry. But that's where he chooses to turn water into wine. Was that all there was to it? Was it only about giving them wine? Well, in one sense, you know what? I want to say yes. Jesus cares about practical needs. You know, his first miracle, if I had been his event manager, I would have picked the walking on water or the feeding of the 5,000 or or, or raising Lazarus. Those are good miracles. Water into wine? You know, I mean, he can do better than that. So, but there's, there's one sense where, you know what, he cares about the ordinary things. Yes, he cares about the lepers. And he cares about Lazarus. And he cares about the people with blind eyes and deaf ears. And he also cares about a guy who's embarrassed because the wine has run out. And I just, I felt that was important. I actually didn't even have that. I felt that some of you need to know today that the Lord cares about the things that you think aren't that important to him. The things that are simple, the things that are every day, the things that are practical, your needs right now, your practical needs, your financial needs, whatever that is. Maybe you need a car. Maybe you need something for the house. Maybe your washing machine is broken down. Maybe Whatever that is, you know what? It's not too small for God. If it matters to you, it matters to him. God cares about the practical as well 
is the big things. Because look at verse 7, but there's something more going on here. Verse 11, sorry, the last verse in this passage. This, the first of the, his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. It's not called a miracle. First, it's called a sign. And what does a sign do? A sign points to something else. A sign points to something beyond itself. There's seven of these signs in John's gospel. The first one is at a wedding and the last one is at a funeral. Because whether Jesus is at a wedding or at a funeral, he completely transforms it. Whether it's the start of a marriage or the end of a couple's life together, when Jesus comes in, he can transform everything. And there's seven of these signs in John's gospel, and they're pointing to something beyond themselves. It's not just about the water and the wine. It's not just about raising Lazarus. It's not just about opening blind eyes. It's about something deeper. If you scratch beneath the surface, if you go on beyond the superficial, there's something more going on here. And I wonder in our own lives right now, are there signs that God is showing us that he wants us to see beyond the surface? I know on a worldwide scale, you know, in Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the signs that would happen before his coming. And I'm not saying that Jesus is returning next week, but as we look at the world right now, I think it's important we don't miss the signs. I think it's important that we don't become casual and flippant and just think, well, that's just happening over there in Israel or Ukraine. No, there's signs happening in front of our eyes. But in our own lives, I think sometimes there's signs. God has shown us something. God is speaking to us through things that are going on in us and around us, and he doesn't want us to miss the signs. One other thing I want you to see here, why is Jesus at the wedding? Verse 2 tells us, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Why is Jesus at the wedding? Because he was invited. He's there because they want him there. It's amazing where Jesus will show up if he's welcomed. And I just want to say that to you. If you invite Jesus into your life, he'll come. If you invite Jesus into your family, he'll be there. If you invite Jesus into your work, he'll be there. No matter how messy your life might be right now, no matter how, how far from God you might feel right now, if you invite him in, he'll come. He loves to be welcomed. That's why at the start of every service, we say we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We know God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But there's something about being welcomed. There's something about being invited. And Jesus wants us to invite him into our lives and into our family and into our relationships and into our marriages and into our homes and into every part of our lives. And if we will invite him, he will come. Next verse, verse three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. Some of you, particularly maybe the younger ones, will have heard of FOMO. FOMO. What does FOMO mean? Fear of, fear of missing out. It means that you don't want to miss out on an event or something exciting. You see something happening on Instagram. You see that there's something, a concert coming up, or there's something, a new product coming out, and you get FOMO. You, you, you have to be there. You want to know more. You, you, you have this fear of missing. I don't have FOMO so much as I have FORO. F-O-R-O, fear of running out. Fear of running out. I always have this paranoid thing that I'm going to run out of stuff. I don't like running out of stuff. Like, when my, when my phone gets to 60% charged, my wife, this is where we're a little bit different. I'll be like, Becky, 
uh, will you phone me? And if you need anything, she goes, well, my phone's at 2%. I'm like, you do know we have 14 chargers in the living room right now? Last week, it was funny, she came home. I came in the house and, you know the little fire logs you use to light the fire? Um, she had bought one of them and I'm carrying three boxes with 30 of them. Like, I like buying bulk. Why? Because I don't like, I don't like running out. You know, she will buy one protein bar every day. I'll buy 10 bars of 12, or 10 boxes of 12, because I don't like running out. I like buying in bulk. I mean, it works in your, you know, in your favor sometimes, doesn't it? Like, like, I mean, I'm not showing off. I'm not saying this, you know, I'm not letting, I'm not letting my light shine before. This week I noticed that your perfume would run low, and you didn't even know when I ordered you a new bottle of perfume. And, Without even telling, yeah, he's a good, good husband. Yes, he is. That's the next song we're going to sing at the end, Griff. But I do. I don't like running out of stuff. And I, I you know, some of you, like, like, unless the light on your car is at A, you won't even think about going to the petrol station. I, I don't like running out. I don't like running out. I've got four o fear, fear of running out. And Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding, and obviously the groom didn't have four o because we're told. The wine runs out. Now, if this is a Northern Ireland Christian wedding, it's no big deal. In fact, they shouldn't have had wine anyway if they were real Christians. You know, uh, what did they do with my wine? They're backslidden. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> he laughs. But I did sit across from a free pay at the last wedding I was at. Um, but, uh, but, but in Jesus' day, this was the worst thing that could happen at a wedding. This was an honor and shame culture. And so for the wine to run out was the epitome of showing dishonor to your guests. Your name would be, would be maligned in the community. People would talk up, remember it for years. In fact, some scholars say that if the wine ran out at a wedding, your, the mother-in-law could take the groom to court and sue him for not providing. Imagine that, a mother-in-law suing. Uh, but she could take the groom to court for suing him for not making provision for the wine. So this was a huge deal. This was a huge shame moment for the groom. You know, I, I was at a, a wedding a number of years ago. And, they, and the food ran out. So they had served, there was 110 guests and they'd served 80 of them and then they discovered that they didn't have food for the other 30, of which I happened to be one. Um, and I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what happened, but they just, and so literally they served 80 people and the rest of us sat there for 35, 40 minutes while they frantically in the kitchen cooked 30 more meals and... The bride and groom were mortified, as you can imagine. The hotel were mortified. I acted mortified. But I know that between the, rece- or between the ceremony and the reception, you always get a McDonald's, okay? Like, that is biblical. It's in Leviticus. You do that if you don't do that, because then you don't make a pig of yourself at the reception. But everybody was mortified. But here in this culture, when the wine ran out, it was the, the greatest shame that you could have. In those days in Jewish culture, wine symbolized a number of things, but mostly wine symbolized joy. Wine symbolized joy. In Psalm 104, 15, it says, God makes wine that gladdens the heart. Ecclesiastes, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. And so when it says that the wine has run out on a deeper level, you know what it's saying? The joy has run out. The joy has run out. The passion, the celebration has run dry. Not a good start for the newlyweds when the joy has run out. 
on the wedding day. And the question I kept asking myself as I read this was, why did the wine run out? How does the wine run out? And I've been thinking a lot about that this week. I went through all the different things. I thought, were they poor? Did they not have? But then it talks later about servants. So it wasn't that they didn't have enough money. But how does the joy run out in our own lives? How do we get drained of our joy? How do we go from being full to being empty? How do we go from being energized and passionate to being run down and depleted? How does the wine run out? I thought that they just not prepare were they really bad hosts, but I don't think so. You know why the wine ran out? It's, it's quite simple, really. The demand was greater than the supply. More was being taken than they had to give. And gradually, the levels of wine, the levels of joy got lower and lower and lower until there was nothing left to give. And I think that's a picture of our own lives sometimes. There's times in our lives where there's just so much coming at us. There's more demands than usual. There's more stress. There's more work. There's more pressures. There's constant busyness. And we keep giving and giving and giving. And we're getting lower and lower and lower. And then we hit a point where we just go, I've nothing left to give. I've just, I've hit empty. We're spent. We're done emotionally. We're empty. We feel like we're flatlined. We might still be going through the motions, but there's just nothing there. We're done. Maybe in this wedding, I was thinking through, maybe a bunch of guests turned up that they weren't expecting. There were a bunch of people arrived, and that's why they'd estimated for who they expected, but then all these other people arrive, and they're not expecting this demand, and so they don't have enough. And sometimes, you know, we we think we're fine, we think we're doing okay, we think we've got enough reserves in our lives, but then something unexpected happens. Something unexpected shows up on our door. We go through a family crisis we're not expecting. There's unusual pressure in our job. Something happens in our marriage. We get a bill that we weren't expecting. And something that we weren't expecting comes in and we thought we had enough, but actually we don't. And we hit empty because we don't have the reserves to deal with it. Or maybe all the guests drank more than expected. Maybe it wasn't just a few people arriving who hadn't been invited. Maybe it was everybody there actually just took more than they had anticipated that they would. And sometimes that's the case in our lives. It's not one thing unexpected. It's just lots of little things. It's just one thing after another. And none of them on their own are big enough to to drain the life out of us. But constantly when we're facing demand after demand and we're giving and we're giving, And you're trying to get by and then one day you hit a wall and you discover that you're empty. And it wasn't one big thing. It was lots of little things. But then at the end, there's one thing that just breaks the camel's back. And you find that you're empty. I wonder, can any of you relate to that? I know I can. I know I've been there. I know I found myself at that place where I was given and I was given and I was given. And then I found I was empty and I had nothing left to give. And I was drained and I was exhausted and I felt numb. But the demands are still there. Maybe over the last three years, you've found yourself getting gradually lower. You know, there's been a lot happened in the last three years in our world, in case you 
hadn't noticed. There's been a lot of demands. There's been a lot of demands on our emotions, a lot of demands on us psychologically, on our families, on our finances, and all of that. And maybe just over the last three years, you know what? Gradually, you found yourself getting lower and lower and lower. And if you were to stop and think, when's the last time I was really joyful? you would struggle to remember. When's the last time I actually had one of those real belly laughs? You know, the ones just where I'm actually really happy and joyful. And you were thinking, this it was probably around 2019. And you didn't realize, but your wine, your joy, has been getting lower and lower and lower. But you're still there. You see, even though the wine had run out, Nobody knew yet. The fact that Mary had to tell Jesus would indicate it hadn't got around yet. And so people are standing there with their glasses getting lower and they're waiting. They're asking themselves, when's the wine coming around? They're still expecting more. And when your wine runs out, when your joy gets empty, when you're running on empty, the very often the people around you, they don't realize and they're their demands are the same and they want more and they need your time and they bring to you their problems and they bring to you this and they bring that and they don't realize that you just have nothing more to give and you're smiling and you're putting on a brave face and you're showing up and you're doing what you always do and you keep giving and people keep taking and they've no idea how low you're getting, that your joy is getting lower, that your energy is lowering, that, you're, that you're, you're, the life is draining out of you, that your soul is weary, that your heart is heavy. And most people have no idea. Most people at the wedding had no idea that the wine had run out. But you know who knew? Mary knew. Mary knew because she was involved. She was, she, she was involved in the wedding. She was close to the groom. She, she, she knew what was going on. And you know what? You, sometimes the people out there don't know that your wine has run out, but the people closest to you know. The people in your home, the people in your family, they're the ones who see you behind the scenes and you go out there and you put on a brave face and you smile and everybody thinks everything's wonderful in your life and you know how are you I'm fine thanks but your family know that the wine has run out and so Mary's in the kitchen maybe and she she overhears a fluster among the servants and the groom they're over in the corner and she says what's going on and the groom is in a panic and he says the wine has run out the wine, I don't know what to do. The wine has run. We have no more wine. And Mary says, look, just give me a second. Give me a second to sort it out. And she goes outside to Jesus. And Jesus is probably looking after Peter because you know what Peter's like at a wedding. You can only imagine. Maybe Peter's the reason the wine ran out in the first place. We don't know. But, 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 but she goes out and she, says, she comes up to Jesus, her son, and she says, Jesus, the wine has run out. And Jesus is like, what? She's like, shh, the wine has run out. And she tells Jesus the problem. There's no more wine. And if you notice, it's, it's a statement. It's not a question. She doesn't ask him to do anything. She just tells him a bit of information. It's like when I say at 6.30, I'm hungry. It's a statement. But it's more than a statement. It's like on a Monday night when... Maybe your wife or husband turns to you and says, I think it's the, the blue bin tomorrow. It's a statement. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, but it's, it's, it's more than a statement. And she says the wine has run out, but she's, she's given him information 
but she's looking for his involvement. She's bringing him into the problem because there's an expectation that he's going to do something. But here's the thing, at least she knew where to go first. Because the groom had probably ran around a bunch of people in the kitchen. And you know what? Very often we run around people and the reason we don't get... The reason we stay empty is because we go to people who can't fill us. And we go to places that can't fill us. And we run from this person to this person or this thing to this thing and from here to there. And we wonder why we're still empty because those things can't fill us. At least Mary knew where to go. Mary, did you know? Yes, she did. She did know where to go when the wine had run out. You know what the Bible says? Cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Cast your burdens, cast your stress, cast your worries. Give them to him. Why? Because he cares for you. I can't solve this problem on my own, but I know someone who can, and he cares for you. She doesn't tell Jesus what to do, but she does tell him what she needs. And then she leaves the rest to him. She doesn't dictate how he should solve the problem. She simply hands it over to him. And I think there's something in that. Where we can come and tell God our needs, we shouldn't tell him how to solve our needs. We can come and bring our prayers, we can't tell him how to answer our prayers. We come and we present our requests before him, knowing that he's a good father, he has heard us, and that he will do something. So she tells him not to inform him, but to involve him. She didn't know what to do, but she knew who to go to. Initially, however, Jesus' response doesn't sound all that particularly positive. Verse 4, woman, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Woman, man, not the best term to use. (laughs) Just for the significant women in your life, woman. You know, this could be a memory verse for the men's ministry in the church. When your wife asks you to do something, just say, John 2.4. Woman, why do you involve me? (laughs) Try that for a week or two. (laughs) I will visit you in 3 South. (laughs) It's actually not as rude as it sounds. It's one of those verses that doesn't translate well. I mean, it's... It basically means lady or, or madam. It's still, it's not a, it's not mum. It's not a term of endearment. There's a, a bit of a relational distance there. Why does Jesus do that? What he's saying to her is, Mary, you might be my mother, but I am not going to be directed by your demands. I'm going to be directed by my father in heaven, not by my earthly mother. So he's not trying to be rude. He's just trying to be clear. I see there's a need, but I'm not going to be rushed or pushed by anyone here on earth because I only do what I see my father doing. I only do what I, my father tells me to do. That's what he's trying to, to say to her. It sounds like he said no to Mary, but I love her response. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She completely ignores him. Only a mother can do that, eh? It sounds like he has said no, but she takes it as a Yes. Because Jesus is her boy, and she knows that if something matters to her, it matters to him. She knows Jesus loves her, and if it matters to her, it matters to him. She knows that if she brings something to Jesus that she can't deal with, it might not look like he's going to do anything, but she can leave it with him. And trust that in his time, in his way, he will look 
after. She knows that delay isn't denial. She's not pushy. She doesn't try to force it, but she's not one bit discouraged or put off. She gives the burden to Jesus and she leaves it with him. And then she turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. That's the best advice in the Bible. Do whatever he tells you. That is the secret to the Christian life, folks. Do whatever he tells you. That is the secret to leading a church for me. Do whatever he tells you. That is the secret in your marriage, in your decisions, in buying a house, in what university to go to, in what, and who to date. Do whatever he tells you. That's the secret to standing firm in a shaky, unstable world. Do whatever he tells you. That's the key to living under the blessing of God. Do whatever he tells you. Because obedience matters to God. Obedience always brings you under the blessing of God. And disobedience and sin always move you in a different direction. Obedience to the word of God, obedience to the will of God, always leads your life in a better direction than disobedience and sin will. Do whatever he tells you. Not whatever the world tells you. Not whatever our culture tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Do what his word says, not what the world says. Because if you follow what the world says, you will end up empty and you will never get filled up. But if you do whatever Jesus tells you, yes, you might have empty times, but he will come and renew and he will replenish you and he will fill you and he will restore you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So there's these huge stone jars. And we're told that they're part of the Jewish rituals, the part of the Jewish religions, a religion that, that you would come and you'd wash your hands and your feet, maybe your, the utensils you were using. And it was part of, of trying to make yourself right before God, that, that uh, he's a holy God, you're unholy, and so you would wash yourself in this ritual water, and using the, the water in these jars to try and make yourself clean before a holy God. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Fill the jars with water. Why does Jesus say that? They don't need water, they need wine. Why would he fill them with water when they need wine? Because Jesus always starts with what you have already. He doesn't start with what you don't have. They don't have wine, but they do have water. And Jesus always starts with what you've got. And if you're willing to obey him, if you're willing to give him what you've got, he will take your ordinary water and he will make it extraordinary. He will take your natural and he will add his supernatural. He will take your five loaves and two fish and he will feed 5,000. He will take the little bit of oil that you have in your kitchen and he will fill jar after jar after jar after jar. He will take your little life and he will do things through it that you could never imagine. But it starts with giving him what you've got, the little that you have. And so he asks, will you fill the jars with water? And I love this. It says, they fill them to the brim. Not halfway, not two thirds. No, they fill them to the brim. Why? Because we serve a God who is more than enough. We serve a God who isn't tight. He isn't stingy. He isn't just about enough. He doesn't just fill us a little bit. He fills us to the brim. We serve a God that Ephesians 3.20 says is able to do abundantly, exceedingly, above all that you could ask or imagine. When you come to Jesus and you say, fill me, he doesn't 
go, oh, there's a wee bit for you. No, he fills you to the brim. He fills you to overflowing. He fills you. The psalmist said, my cup overflows. Let's get rid of this poverty, stingy, begging God for just enough mindset. We serve a God who is able to do more than we could ask or imagine. He fills it to the brim. When we bring our emptiness to him, he pours out all that he has and all that he is into us. He doesn't give you a little bit of himself. He gives you the fullness of everything that he has. So stop having low expectations of God. Let's finish the passage, verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Just just something here before I go on. The servants who had drawn the water knew. Those who serve will always have a greater revelation of Jesus than those who just receive. Just got that revelation there now. The servants knew where it had come from. The guests who were consumers didn't. Can I say to you that the more you serve Jesus, the more you step up, the more you give, the more you obey, the more you, 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 you do the will of Jesus, you will have a greater revelation of Jesus than those who just sit back and receive. Anyway, that was for free. Um, Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much drink, but you have saved the best till now. Jesus says, draw out some wine to the servants and bring it to the MC, to the master of ceremonies and let him taste it. And he's stunned. He is stunned because this is halfway through the wedding and normally this is the Asda four-pound Shiraz stage, Okay. Because everybody's had a little bit of wine and they don't really care what they're drinking by this stage. And he tastes it and he goes, this is not your Asda three for tenner wine. This is your 25 pound Cabernet Sauvignon quality stuff. He says, what's going on here? Normally they say, they, 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 they serve the worst or the best stuff first and the worst stuff at the end. But in this case, he says, you have saved the best to last. You've saved the best till the end. And you know, there's two things real quickly here. First thing is this. Our God has saved the best to the end. In this life, you might have troubles. In this life, you have tribulation, but this world is not all there is. Our God has saved the best till the end. There's a wedding coming. It's the wedding. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible starts with a wedding with Adam and Eve, and it finishes with a wedding where Christ marries his bride, his church, and there's a wonderful celebration. Jesus saves the best to the last. But also for the older people, I'm not looking at anybody, but for the older people in this church, I want to say to you, you might feel like you've run out, but God has saved the best to last. God has saved the best to last. There's a fresh filling. There's a new filling. There's a new empowering. There's a new replenishment for you. God hasn't finished with you. You might think I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm 85 years old. I want to say to you, God might have saved the best to last. That what you have seen may be nothing compared to what you see. That the glory of the latter house will be great, will not be as good is the, or, or the glory of the latter house will be better than the glory of the former house. God saves the best to last. And just a few things to say and then we're done. Number one is this. God is able to accelerate the process. God is able to accelerate the process. You know, when I was a kid, I remember my dad went through this stage 
where he made wine at home. And he would go, I was going to say Boots, but I think it was Connor's chemist in those days. Some of you will, or some of the younger ones will be like, Connor who? You know, it was Connor's chemist, and he, he bought this little wine kit. And I don't know exactly, it was this huge glass jar, and there was water, and then there were this powder and this, different things went into it. And then he would put it in the hot press, and it, he'd leave it for I don't know, 17 years or whatever it was, or like a few months, and, and, and it would ferment, and then I remember it would sit in the kitchen, cool, or in the, in, the, in the garage, cooling down, and, 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 and then he would drink it. It looked disgusting, I've got to be honest, but, but there was a long process. That was with a wine kit. You can imagine those days of Jesus. You planted the seed, the vineyard grew, you tended the vineyard, you pruned the vineyard, you waited for the grapes, you crushed the grapes, you, 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 you took the juice, you, you, you put, it, took, it took years, years for wine to be produced. Jesus here does it in an instant. Something that should have taken a long time happens instantaneously. There is an acceleration that happens. And yes, I believe absolutely in process. And I believe in persevering. And I believe in waiting for the Lord. And I believe in that there's preparation that God puts us through. And that is the normal way of doing things. But you know what? There's sometimes when God just shows up and he accelerates the entire thing. Have you ever met somebody who was addicted to someone, to something, or maybe someone, who was addicted? And they should have six months or 12 months in rehab and God miraculously changes their hearts overnight. And they never go back to that thing again, or that person again. <laughs> I know someone, some of you will have met him. He's been here a few times. I got into his taxi one day. He was a cocaine addict, had spent six grand in cocaine in five weeks. He comes to church. He gets born again. He never touches it again. Someone who's ill, the doctors are saying six months of treatment, nine months of treatment, they get prayed for. Completely restored. We've seen it. I remember there was a girl who had scars on her stomach from self-harm, and I didn't know that. When we were talking about God healing stars, scars, and she went home that day, and she, looked, she was changing, and she looked, the scars were completely gone, just like that. I have seen God accelerate processes. I'm not saying it's happening, but that's what makes it a miracle. But we serve a God who does miracles. Yes, we believe in process. We believe in waiting on the Lord. We believe in preparation. Absolutely. But I want to say to you in these days, there's some things that are accelerating in our world. Technology's accelerating. Communication's accelerating. Everything out there in the world seems to be going faster, doesn't it? Maybe our God is going to accelerate some things. I want to believe that for some of you who have been waiting and waiting and waiting. Can I say to you that even in me coming here, I was just thinking, this has just struck to me now. The Church of Ireland process between a job being closed, for, like the closing date for applications, and the minister starting, Henry Blair, Reverend Henry Blair, it's normally about six months. Three months of interviews, three months, then you leave. Between the closing date for Hope Church and me starting here was five weeks. What should have taken six months, God did in five weeks. Sometimes he will accelerate the process. And some of you are going to find that happening in your life. I'm reluctant to say this, but some of you aren't going to date for four years. You're going to date like us for four months. And then you're going to get engaged. Some of you aren't going to go through process after process and interview after interview. God is just going to put the job in front of you that you actually don't even feel qualified for yet. But he's going to accelerate the process. 
God is a God who can speed things up. The book of Amos in chapter 9 says that there'll come a day when the plowman will overtake the reaper. In other words, the guy who's reaping won't have time to reap everything because things will be growing behind him even just after he's reaped it. Our God is a God who can accelerate things. And the last thing is this. Jesus is greater than the emptiness of religion. Jesus is greater than the emptiness of religion. Look at verse 6 again. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. You know, there's a wee specific detail that we're told here, and it feels like it's for no reason. How many water jars are there? Six. It doesn't just say there were some water jars. It was six. John is very specific about numbers. How many fish were caught after the resurrection? 153. In the book of Revelation, also written by John, it's all about sevens. Seven, seven. You know what seven is the number of? Perfection. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number for God. Seven angels, seven churches, seven lampstands. There's seven signs in the book of John. Seven is God's number of completion, perfection. What is six? I went to Clowna, but I, can, I even know that it's one less than seven, okay? In other words, it's just falling short of perfection because all have sinned and fallen short. Number six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. The mark of the beast is 666. It's the number of man. So what's going on here? Why is there six stone water jars? Well, these jars that were used for ceremonial washing, it was, a, it was a Jewish religious system. What it's saying is this. This is the best man can do to make himself right with God. These six stone water jars are the best that humans can do to come into a relationship with God. But you know what? It still falls short. Because you can wash the outside and you can clean your hands and you can wash your feet, but inside it does absolutely nothing. You're still the same person. You can obey the law, you can obey the rules, you can obey the regulations, you can go through the rituals and the rites, and it's all on the surface, but it doesn't take away your sin because deep down you're exactly the same. You're an earth pot with dirty water inside. It's not really what humans are. We're made from dust, earth, and to dust we will return. And do you know our bodies are 60 or 70% water? We're earth and water. We're, we're earth pots with dirty water in them. And we can't do anything about that. We can't change ourselves. We're just earth and water. We can do our best and we can, we can try to be good living and we can go to church and we can, oh, we can read the Bible and we can, we, can, we, can, we can do all these things that we can wear our Sunday bed and we can... But it doesn't make it. We're just earth and water. And we always come up empty. On our own, we can never get to heaven. But then 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth. And this is why this was the first miracle. It wasn't just about meeting a need for wine. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He fully obeyed every part of the law that we could never obey. And they hung him on a cross. And there his blood was poured out. And you know, we've said that wine represents joy, and that is true, but wine represents two other things in the Bible and in Jewish tradition. The first thing is this, wine represents the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, what did they say? They have had too much wine. 
They looked at these guys who had been girls who had been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they said they're intoxicated. And it looked like they were drunk on wine, but they weren't. They were full of the Spirit. Ephesians five eighteen: Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled by the Spirit. Wine symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Just as wine causes you to behave and walk and talk in one way, so the Holy Spirit causes you to walk and talk in a different way. The Holy Spirit comes into our life to bring life and joy and passion. Acts 13, 52, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you feel like the joy has gone out of your life, the passion has gone out of your life, something that you once had with God is gone. At the end of this, this message, I'm going to pray that God would fill us with his Spirit afresh and that you would be full of joy again, that he would restore and replenish the joy, that he would pour the new wine into your empty vessel, and that he would fill you with wine to overflowing. So wine represents joy. It represents the Holy Spirit. And finally, the third thing is wine represents the blood. Remember the Passover where Jesus was celebrating with his disciples the night before he died? He took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And his precious blood was poured out. And as he breathed his last breath and he cried, it is finished, in a moment, in an instant, something happened. The moment Jesus cried his last breath, the old water of religion that could never make you clean was completely replaced by the new wine of his blood that could cleanse you completely. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. And now through faith in Jesus, through trusting in his work, through trusting in his blood shed on the cross, the Holy Spirit comes into our clay pots, our earthen vessels. The Holy Spirit comes inside and he fills us and he lives within us and he fills us to the brim and he radically transforms us from the inside out. And it happens in an instant. The moment you repent of sin, the moment you bow the knee to Jesus, the moment you come to the end of doing things your way and you say, I'm empty, I've tried it my way and I'm empty and I don't know where to go. The moment you turn to Jesus, he fills you to the brim with his spirit, with his presence because of his blood. You know, water and wine in some ways are similar. They're both liquids. They both have a similar substance to them, but they're completely different. They're completely different. One is vastly superior to the other. And when Jesus turned water into wine, it wasn't just a minor change. He was totally transforming the substance, the chemical makeup, the, the DNA, if you like, of the, of the liquid. It was a supernatural transformation. And when we come to Jesus and when we give him our sin, when we give him our religion, when we give him our best efforts that haven't worked, that have left us empty, and we ask him to fill us, we might still look like a, a, an earthen vessel, a clay pot on the outside. But on the inside, there's something different has happened. There's something supernatural has happened. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone all things are made new. In John 3, Jesus described it as being born again. It's a supernatural thing. It can't be done by man. And on the outside, yes, you look the same. The moment you come to Christ, you don't change physically. You might glow. You might have an appearance. I've seen people come to Christ, and yes, literally, they look different. They've got a new radiance about them. 
But on the outside, typically you just look the same. But on the inside, something has happened. There's been a supernatural transformation. It's not a spiritual facelift. It's not a religious makeover. It's not an external cleanup. No, the Bible says that you become a brand new creation. There's a supernatural transformation that's completely a work of God. And he takes our water and he turns it into wine. And that's what he wants to do today. He wants to take the water of religion and he wants to turn it into the wine of joy. Real joy, lasting joy, sustaining joy that doesn't run out. You know, he takes our brokenness and he gives us beauty. He takes our misery and he gives us mercy. He takes our sin and he gives us forgiveness. He takes our guilt and he gives us his grace. He takes our burdens and he gives us his blessing. He takes our fear and he gives us his faith. He takes our despair and he gives us his hope. He takes our darkness and he gives us his light. He takes our burdens and he gives us his blessing. He takes our heaviness and he gives us his praise. He takes our emptiness and he gives us his fullness. He takes our lack and he gives us his provision. He takes our weakness and he gives us his strength. He takes our shame and he gives us his righteousness. Sometimes God lets the wine run out so that we will come to him and realize just how much we need him to fill us again. And this morning right now, I want to pray for all of us, whether you're here or watching online, that no matter how full or how empty you are, that God will fill you to the brim with his wine, with his joy, with his spirit by the blood of Jesus.